celebrating success, learning from legends, and growing poppies. This is Tall Poppy Talk with Grace Lewis. Kia ora and welcome to Tall Poppy Talk. Alice Sofa is an advocate with a prominent voice growing louder and making space for women's sport throughout Aotearoa, New Zealand and abroad. Alice is a former rugby player, commentator and a member of the Strategic Advisory Group for Women in Rugby Aotearoa. She's a writer, regular columnist for The Locker Room and The New Zealand Herald. She's published in the spin-off, The Sunday Star Times, Herald on Sunday and The Guardian and has been interviewed for broadcast powerhouses such as The New York Times, Radio NZ, News Talk ZB, MyFM and more. She co-hosted the interview series on Sky Sport, Loose Head Footy. And with so much to dive into, it is my pleasure to welcome you, Alice, to Tall Poppy Talk. Where and how are you today? Ah, I am fabulous. After people read off a list of cool stuff I've done, what a lucky girl I am. Look, I'm um, talking to you t- uh, today from Te Whanganui Atara, so um, from the beautiful Wainui Omata, which is where I live, and you're talking to me at my desk here, which is where I scheme and plan most of my um, most of my rants that I send out to the world, I guess. Epic, and you call them rants. I don't see them that way, but I, <laughs> I, I love that. Um, just to get straight into it, can you talk us through your rugby journey from when you started playing to how you have pivoted into what you call ranting, but covering the game, the sport, just what's the rugby journey? Yeah, look, uh, so for me, like a lot of kids, uh, grew up playing footy on the playground at school. Um, My primary school didn't have any grass. We used to play on the concrete. And um, so it would be touch when the teachers were watching and then it would be less so when they weren't. Um, when I was uh, about 11, 12, I had a teacher actually that used to take us down to a little patch of grass so that we could play at lunchtime. His name was Mr. Webb. And in my memory, he was like the tallest, biggest man in the world. I wonder how big he is in real life, but like in my memory, giant man. And he used to play with us and it would take like, I don't know, a pack of kids to tackle. But that was like my first I guess like I definitely want to play this game because when I was younger believe it or not because I'm a front row now um I was an outside back so I was quite quick so I used to love just tucking the ball and just gassing all the boys um and scoring as many tries as I could uh, I went to Onslow College I was really lucky my um sports coordinator there was an absolute legend of um women's rugby here in Wellington Marama Tauroa um and she was very cool and worked with us so she put a notice up and said hey who wants to play um school girls rugby wanted to get a team together and I was the only one that turned up um and at that time I was like this scrawny little parkier and I maybe wasn't who she had in mind um but I was like give me a week and so I went around and you know found and conjoled a few people I think I got about 10 um and so then she met that effort uh, and we actually combined with Newlands College who we normally are rivals to put a team together um I was lucky that she was my sports coordinator because she also then connected me with my local club. Uh, and so I went and I played uh, women's rugby when I was still 13, um, played and ended up making the sevens team, Wellington sevens team alongside her, which was crazy. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so that kind of started things off for me. Um, but then also, like my first entry was absolutely beautiful. I thought, oh man, woman coach, then got picked for the secondary school rep team. Two more amazing women coaches. Went to a sport a school that like sports weren't necessarily that cool. So like people didn't really care if 
you were a boy or a girl playing it, like you would, if you were good at sports, people are just like mint. And so we used to play on a Monday afternoon where, and we would play right where all the buses would pick, pick, pick people up. And so all the like boys would watch and then they thought I was mean because I scored so many tries. So I was like, wow, this is what sport's going to be like forever. Um, and unfortunately that was not true. Um, it only took two years for those like first um, beautiful things start falling over. Um, we had a change in sports coordinator. We no longer had a team because we didn't have someone that was going that extra mile to put a team together. Uh, New Zealand rugby got rid of sevens for women. So I didn't have that pathway anymore. Um, so, and then it kind of continued on from there. So it was like this realization that the first step in, I was met with all this Uffy and like just all these opportunities, amazing things um, given to me. And then really quickly that all started kind of falling apart. And that made me realize that it's like, it's never just about talent. It's also got to be about the opportunities, meeting that talent where it is in order for people to go far. Uh, so yeah, pretty outspoken, I guess, from the, from the jump, um, you know, agitated a few times at my local clubs and that. Um, we ended up quitting one club, moved to another club because of the sexism that was going on there. Uh, and then for me personally, I had um, chipped away for a bunch of years. Always wanted to kind of know that I was good, like with people that didn't know me. I kind of, I guess I managed to tell myself that maybe I'd got as far in New Zealand because I just kind of stuck around long enough, um, which is a lie, but anyway. Um, so I went and I played over in England in the first two years of their Premiership 15s, which is like their Super Rugby competition. Um, and that was awesome. And also like just so happened, um, I had been blessed all my life with pretty good timing. Um, so just so happened that that obviously set me up for the next part of my life, which was talking about sports, because I know a bunch of the uh, English, Irish, Scottish players, because I played against them or with them when I was over there. So uh, go over England, play a couple of seasons there, come back, came back. And like it was when I was over there, like I had had all these perceptions right around, oh, we've got all these limitations about how rugby's working here in New Zealand. And I had a bit of a Monet view of English rugby. I thought, oh, it looks beautiful over there. And then you get closer up and it's just a mess, right, of the same strokes of sexist bullshit over there that is holding people back. So I was like, oh, it's the same everywhere. So actually maybe it was never women that were the problem or structures. It was just the fact that these structures were never actually designed for our participation. So when I came back, I had a real... I guess shift in mindset. I was kind of sick of like all the excuses because I'd seen them now worldwide. Um, and so came back into that space pretty quickly after that was like when COVID and stuff hit. And that's when like the um, first time, like I would rant to my mates after training all the time in like the car park about all the different things that would be going on. And I'd always have battles with our clubs. Like for my local club it took us five years to get our hundred game blazers. Like, we had a long battle with them to get that across the line. So like I had all of these in my day to day. Um, and it was when I came back when COVID happened and the press release came out about um, competitions and which ones would be up and running. Now at that moment in time, we were supposed to be hosting the Rugby World Cup in 21. The only step at that time between club and international was the Farah Palmer Cup, which is our provincial competition. And it was really vague on whether or not that was going to be up and running. 
and New Zealand rugby has cancelled that before, back in 2010, which was a World Cup year due to financial issues. So as soon as I saw them starting to be murky, I was like, here we go again. And I did what I always did, which was like yell about stuff. Only this time I happened to put it on Twitter. And then all of a sudden I'm on the six o'clock news yelling at, uh, <laughs> at New Zealand rugby going, what's going on? Um, and kind of went from there. So it was like, I guess a case of, I, I spoke up about things every now and then, and I guess they did it good enough that people kind of gave me other opportunities to speak more and then eventually asked me to write, which was never part of my plan, but just kind of away we go. That's a really long answer for you, but there you go. It needs to be a long answer. That's the point is I, yeah. there are a few ding, ding, dings happening there. Yeah. It feels like, well, it is in those early stages, like even that, you know, apparently two meter large man who took you down to the grass. Um, he sticks in your mind. Same with your sports coordinator. I forget her name. What was it? Marama. 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 Excellent. Mm. Like there's been a couple catalysts that had they not been there and clearly because when she left, it fell apart. So your voice growing louder and louder is because of your experiences and exactly going overseas and being like, oh, this is a worldwide issue. This is not just a Aotearoa New Zealand experience thing. What did it mean then for the Women's Rugby World Cup last year? Like I know there was a lot of investment in the English team. So part of you is like, oh, you want to see that investment pay off, like yeah. to show that it it's worth it. But in the same way, there's investment here. So for you, was that almost like an emotional thing to see how far the attention had come for women's rugby? Yeah, I mean, it was a real head versus heart situation in that um, tournament. And, I, and that like in my head and rationalizing things, you wanted to see England do really well because like we say, they are the, uh, the test case for having put much more, not just like resource, right, but proper structure and like, a long-term view in it. Like the problem that we have here is that we've done a bunch of stuff, but we've only done it for like one or two seasons and then it kind of changes around again. And the thing we seem to refuse to give players here is like length of season. So the fundamental that has like uplifted the English as far as I see it is that Premiership 15s, which they have a, a, a competition of 10 teams that runs for like three, four months. And so just that regular game time, what that does to uplift you, you know, versus here, cool, we've got Opiki now, but like for how long? A month? You know, like yeah. that's not enough for anybody. And and the way that that holds back everyone involved, not just the players, right, but the whole infrastructure around it in terms of coaching development and management and people even like me that are writing about the tournament have a shorter window in which to kind of develop those skills. So that type of stuff um, is frustrating. And now I've completely lost your question because <laughs> I went on a bit of a tangent. Oh, head versus heart. So, yeah. yeah. So a bit of a, a head thing in terms of then seeing that and going, I want this to be rewarded because I want it to be like non-negotiable that you continue to invest because yeah. New Zealand rugby has gotten away for a really long time on not properly investing and developing our talent because we're just so good, right? We have an innate ability within the sport because we are playing it from when we were kids, much younger than England, for example, where it's getting younger, but a lot of those girls come to the game when they're at university. And so that's a couple of things. That's class. So there is a class issue that they have around yeah. their demographics, but also like late, you know, and so you're still 
processing the game like you're in your head quite a lot rather than instinctively which is why you know last year when we were given the support for our team to play to their instincts they went off right yeah so you have that um tension there and then of course there's the heart of it and that like I I will continue to say that yes it was absolutely beautiful to see everybody in and stuff and this is like we've known for a long time that New Zealand women are fantastic at rugby, that we've won five World Cups, that we were um, the best of the best, have the highest winning record of a rugby team, you know, like over our whole history. But we knew these things, but we never felt those things because all of these wins had happened abroad, that all happened in the middle of the night, that all happened with piss all coverage. And so, like, the New Zealand public didn't actually know, but here it was here, and it was tangible, and we could go down, and it was all the stuff that I've said for ages, so it was real validation for me around the relational reset that women's sports in general offers, you know, traditional sports, which might have been put into a box around kind of attached to that toxic masculinity stuff, where we know if you've lived and breathed in community sport that that's not the case and that it is a real like far no fear and that we have that opportunity to put that kind of heart of the thing back into it so having people respond in that way put my hand up say i did not expect us to sell things out i didn't think we'd done a good enough job in seeding that excitement throughout the year um so amazing amazing to sit there and have that and even more beautiful though was walking around and seeing all of the people that were in the stands who made that happen. You know, that there were so many of that original 1991 World Cup team who each paid $5,000 to go and represent New Zealand without permission, really, just kind of went over there. So this World Cup was organised by another group of women who were also there, being recognised by World Rugby for having arranged that first tournament without permission. And seeing all of them getting to celebrate that, that was actually more special to me than what happened on the park. That actually gives me the goosebumps, eh? Just hearing that, because that's 30, 31 years. Those women from 1991. It's actually, clearly it's taken my words away of the fact that it took 31 years. We were world-class then. And a fighting tooth and nail to show that. And so... Platforms like the locker room that you write for, what role does that serve? Because obviously you're saying New Zealand's pretty lucky that yeah we have the skill, we have the we have the talent, and a lot of them obviously go overseas and then come back because they're seeking the talent elsewhere. So in terms of this whole infrastructure you're talking about, what role does the locker room serve? Mm. Well, I mean, I think just. <sighs> First and foremost, I know that Suze McFadden, Suzanne McFadden, who um, was the first editor of that, I understand that she's stepping down next month, Um, but, like, I know that she was motivated by just this whole thing that we've known for ages, that, like, the percentage of coverage that we get compared to, like, how much women are actually playing sports is pathetic. And so, okay, why don't we just do something about it? And this is something, you know, that I still see, right? Like, it used to bother me when I first started that people would always kind of like because the first intros right were like asking me to jump on a podcast or whatever and they're always just wanting like the women's sports stuff and I was a bit frustrated about having been put in that box because I was like you know I'm I'm see all of rugby actually but now I wear that like as a badge of honor and that actually no a lot of people don't know enough about our sports um and so that's actually a specialty skill that should be 
uh, valued. And so I think it's just this whole thing of like, there's such a part of the issue as well, right? With sports coverage is the bias goes all the way into the sports rooms, you know, newsrooms. These are people that have been in the industry for a long time who are serving as editors who have been told or believed themselves what is or isn't interesting for people to read, you know? Um, so there was a real, like, one of the parts that kind of drove me mad during last year's World Cup was, like, the number of long-term rugby journos who were suddenly like, oh, wow, women's rugby. It's like, you could literally have written this at any point before. And, in fact, a number of you spoke against continuing to support or called us, like, that we were just complaining and stuff. And now you want to kind of be a bandwagon, bro? Like, that annoyed me. Um and so it's understanding like that whole thing of you don't have to prove like if this is a space and we're talking about women's sports, like I can just pitch things in there anytime that I'm like, I hear an interesting story, there's a place for it. And the issue is like, I think we've still got a bit of growing up to do um, in terms of how we talk about women's sports. Firstly, it's like all really earnest and worthy, right? Like you either get the stories of like, Dame Val Adams, right? Who's like so up here, so many achievements, like amazing, amazing, amazing. Absolutely adore her, but we always get this picture of her. She's cracker. She's like, she's pretty like, like naughty, to be honest. I was on a panel with her the other day and I was like, you're cheeky ass. But we very rarely get that, like, we don't get to be funny and we don't get to be like, I don't know, nuanced and all of this type of stuff. It's always like, aren't these women good? Aren't they worthy? Aren't they doing a great job? Look at all their sacrifices. And it's like, but why are we asking them to sacrifice? And why are we only talking about them if they've won a thousand medals? Like, what about all the shades? I'm, I'm looking forward to the day where like, I get to just write about I don't know, regular people in the sports as well. I'm really looking forward to what I see coming through in maybe the next five years, which is after Opiki has been on our screens long enough, we'll have like cult heroes. So these will be the hometown heroes that we've seen all the time in the men's game, but we haven't had an opportunity for our public to fall in love with. Like I know who those are already in my hometown. Those ones that are there year on year that hold a team together, but you know, for whatever reason might not be the next step up, but are just as important as part of the sport ecosystem. And we just don't give them any level coverage at the moment. It's like, there's a whole world of stories still waiting to be told. So we need more than just the locker room to tell it. Yes. And uh, Ashley Stanley, she, yeah. uh, she was on the pod and explaining to me like ideally the locker room doesn't become redundant but it's like such a common coverage that there doesn't need to be a specific woman's sport yeah sub platform it's just like or anyone's covering it if you're a sports presenter or sorry a sports reporter you're writing about all sport I was like yeah, so you you want to promote it to a point where it's like everyone's doing it. I don't know. What do you what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Like, I think, I think there's two things. One is that like it's been really interesting watching um some of like the again the older style commentators and pundits struggle with like match fitness, as I would call it. Like in the same way that when we're looking at selections for teams, that we're like you have to constantly be developing your skill set in yeah. order to be at the top of your game and selected. And it's really interesting that. Like we see that on the far, uh, on the field, but off the field, there's been a real hesitancy to like continue to push and up your game. We've seen that around like how slow it's been for people to try and pronounce people's names correctly. Uh, we've seen that around like how shallow the pool of knowledge is for 
a lot of pundits in the women's game. It's like, it is, it is to be fair, more difficult because yeah, a lot of the comms and stuff around all of it hasn't, you know, hasn't carried across. We aren't given, you aren't given the same kind of notes and that, that you might, I'm trawling like social media. I'm, I'm hitting up the rugby mums to get all the inside goss, right. To, to put things together, but it's like, it's actually not good enough if you only carry cover one half of the sport anymore, because whatever it is, there's going to be another group of people that are also playing it and you need to talk about everyone. Um, and if you're not, you need to ask that question about why, why is it that I don't know anything about this and how can I um, continue to up my game? Yes. That um, gets me thinking and you wrote about it somewhere. You write a lot of things um, <laughs> <laughs> that we're not little men. And in my um, athletic career as a rower, that was often things we would discuss, right? Is like even things in the comms around the women's game, it's lacking because there's just not this huge knowledge or maybe not a curiosity to upskill. And so I'm like getting to my question now. What <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on the opportunities and the power possible if we had more women specific sports science and training methods? Yeah, and I think all of that is really important too to hold in our mind at the same time as like societal norms and expectations, right? Because these things can't be removed from each other. There is, you look at our sports history and like women's rugby in New Zealand has been played as long as men have played rugby in New Zealand. Too many people don't know that. The first women were paid to play in 1891. So we've been around, okay? But if you look at and you track the history, how are we writing about women that are uh, wanting to play? They're like uh, at risk of temperamental as well as physiological damage, right? And that there were like, there was a team in the 1920s and there's so many column inches if you want to go into like papers passed online and have a look around all this like outrage from doctors about how bad this is going to be for us in terms of for our bodies and like it's the same stuff that was used against runners you know there were moments and times where the doctors said like our uterus would fall out if we ran you know like these are things that people really believe and the thing to keep that in mind with that right is that science and our lines of inquiry are also going to be driven by our lines of interest and our lines of interest are going to be framed by our societal you know norms and expectations so we can't separate these things apart i think that there's a real <laughs> i have a whole thing about bias right and that we, you know, this whole fake thing of neut like neutrality, there's no such thing. So we can't, yeah, I have this thing about biases and I think about that all the time, obviously now as a writer, where like, I lean into my bias. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I could never, there will never be a, a version of events where I can completely remove all of my life experiences from my worldview to then be able to present it. If you and me are li given a list of quotes from the same interview, we will pull different ones depending on what speaks to us. You know, so I'm always like with these things when it comes to writing, I'm always like, okay, these are part of it, but it's the same when we're looking at how we're looking at informing science and informing, you know, uh, training programs, etc. I would love it to be obviously nuanced to our physiology, but it also needs to be nuanced to our sociology. Yeah. There is a fundamental that there will always be a different expectation placed on women and their role, role in the family as it exists right now. We've obviously seen that move and yeah. that there are, you know, now women have jobs, et cetera. But like that is still shifting. And I think about it even as like 
when I used to coach at a high school here in um, Wellington and that the number of my girls that when they were like 15, 16, 17, there was suddenly an expectation on them also to be doing caretaking in their family. That's just like, wouldn't necessarily be the same expectation that would be put on their brothers at that same age. And so that those, those deviations start so young, you know, even further back, if we're talking about the little girl who might be the only one in her rugby team at under eights, and so the boys won't pass to her because they're told that, oh, boys are good at sports and girls aren't, right? And so all of a sudden, her opportunities to play are not as great as her teammates. And so all of this is deviating from, like, the first step. And so all of this requires a different design in order to bring them back in line. Yeah, and that makes me think, too, your example of one young girl much like yourself hey there's no space and then you go and rally 10 people but then you start playing women's rugby at 13 because there's not a spot for you um Jade Coates who uh, is now playing with Fijiana Dura I remember playing sevens in school and I'm I'm not hand-eye coordinated but she was like let's get amongst it because for her clearly it's become a legit path but she needed people and she was coaching the under 15s uh sevens team like that sort of catalyst and her sisters were the same. I created this really positive experience, much like you did with rugby, even though, you know, I, I chucked the ball down and then walked away and picked up an oar. And um, having some of those catalysts really spark it. And it's so cool seeing someone like yourself, uh, Melanie, Rob- Melanie Robinson, in the commentating aspect and the writing and the reporting, because you have all that knowledge, you've got that player experience. Do you ever find yourself... Um, almost pessimistic like why is this taking so long how do you how do you battle with that so two things there first is I I think it's an important thing given the topic of your um podcast to pick up on you know when you're saying to me oh you're very qualified I can tell you that that was a real thing that put a handbrake on like how worthy I felt around doing this writing and talking in the first instance because I'd never played for New Zealand and in my mind that black jersey is what then entitled me to have opinions, right? Like, who okay. am I to speak on? But Well, a couple of things also, right? The fact that I'm Pākehā and I'm playing a sport that I'm in the minority in terms of our demographics. So there's, like, multiple things going on there. But really, that, like, I felt that acutely when I was first kind of accidentally the activist because <laughs> outspoken woman plus obstacle equals accidental activist um stepping in there I was like I don't have the right credential in order to uh speak on behalf so I guess I my way of overcoming that was like I was always very clear to speak from my experience and that's always something I I, I give as advice to people when they're like how do you have confidence well firstly that's difficult for me to explain because I think if you're someone who is naturally outspoken it's harder for me to be quiet than it is to speak up Um, but I do say that when you do choose you'll use your voice really be clear about speaking to what your experience is in a space because that will never be wrong that's the truth of your experience people may try and pull you particularly in the way that kind of the media works they might try and pull you to come and talk on another issue and I always just pivot away from it like if you have watched me do interviews and stuff I might every now and then get asked oh well, what do the players think and I go well look I I haven't spoken to them but I feel this you know so it's like always being clear on what it is and who it is 
that yeah. you're speaking for, I guess. So that was, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. Thank you. Yeah. Of, um, on, on that there. But the second part around pessimism, optimism. Well, I'm an optimist. I have to be in order for me to have survived as long as I have in the sport and continue to like be in here and pushing for better. I have to believe it gets better. But the misconception, right? I've told the former um, <laughs> chief executive of Wellington Rugby, I was like, your biggest issue is when I stop talking to you because if I stop making noise, it's when I believe that there's no hope, right? Of change. So my outspokenness is actually despite you might think it's negative and I'm throwing negative things at you, my outspokenness is because I believe we can do it better. But to the second point, do I think that I'll ever get to a point where I'm like happy? The answer is no, because I will always, like my job and my instinct are as an advocate. So I will always believe in pushing further, further right? And so if I ever get to a point where I think, oh, this is enough in terms of what I believe, that's the point in which I step back and somebody else goes further. Because if you look at the waves of political movement, right? Um, feminism, for example, there's first, second, third wave, fourth wave feminism. And it's because we all end up crashing on the shore of like what our expectations and what we thought was in reach. And then the next wave comes and goes further up, right? And eventually we erode away the patriarchy. But we have to like continue to pass on that baton. And I think that's a really important part of like advocacy, activism, push for change, is to know like as far as you have carried it, if you have reached the end of where you think you can push it to, let someone else go further. And don't, like I see this from time to time with some of our older athletes, right? They might talk about these younger ones now and they talk about an entitlement. They're like, oh, they get this, that, and the other that I never got. And I want them to reframe that and think, no, that is a symptom of your success, that they don't have to fight to get, you know, basic training programs that they do get to train uh, play on the main field that they are now getting a little bit of money. That has all happened because you sacrificed first. And don't you want your sacrifice to have been worth something? And if it's the same as it was when you started, then what you sacrificed was for nothing. So it being easier for the next people coming through is a good thing. And they will have different challenges that we never knew. We're seeing that in the moment with the way that social media is impacting our young ones. I have a real concern and um, that I'm holding, particularly particularly for my sport, um, when it comes to our front row, because they are made of a body type which we haven't really had a lot of visi visibility of in like mainstream sports media, and that these women are powerful and they are strong, but we have never seen a woman built like that. If you think about Black Fern Sevens, for example, they're a much more homogenous body type. And that's the beautiful thing that rugby offers us is that range. But we have to make sure that we're giving that wraparound and support to those that don't fit that societal norm. Because these big, beautiful, strong women will have a lot of people telling them they're fat. And it's not the case. They're just built differently than what we expect. Yeah, that's uh, Iona Mayer, the US player. I love, she's like always wearing lipstick, right? And to your point, because she is strong and she is built and she's wearing lipstick. And sometimes in your brain, you're like, oh, that's a cognitive um, like conflict there. There's all this makeup typically isn't what really sporty people are wearing. She's like, fuck that. Honestly, she's like, I'm creating my own path. She stands as this role model, especially on social media, who's like, I don't fit a mold. 
there's not something for me and she's being that so hopefully to your point the next generation coming through get some of that yeah and I mean I think about that all the time like I'm a little bit older right and I'm really pleased that like whatever visibility I have is at this final stage you know like a um like a Pokemon that evolves I'm like thank god people see me now rather than like in my early 20s when I didn't know I was queer and I didn't know who I was yet and that's the issue that we also have around these athletes is they're getting younger and younger and I just think like we've got to look after them they don't know who they are yet we need to like let people make some mistakes and and figure it out like thank god yeah <laughs> thank god that the photos of me when I'm younger only exist when I choose to share them rather than them being like I don't know like look at this clip I guess there is lots of clips of me when I still had longer hair when I played rugby but yeah for the most part it's like you get this one and also like knowing it's funny knowing how this weird thing that happened like I came out quite late right and so I have again a bit of an imposter syndrome around that because I'm like I lived most of my life and played most of my career with like a straight privilege where I was okay I say that I was like definitely um people said shit about the fact that I played rugby I must be gay and all that and I think that to be honest was part of the reasons why it took me a while to kind of figure that out about myself was like putting up a hard protection yeah um, and, and I felt again like a little bit of stuff I had that there. Like I didn't have the like struggle of my teens or my twenties. I figured out I was queer, and then it was like, oh, awesome, great. That was it. Like there was no, I didn't have any of that pain time. Or I mean, I guess I did. I had to break up with a boyfriend, but like I didn't really have like a whole period of long period of angst. I just went from oh yeah, cool, flip the switch, away we go. Um, but like how. I, I feel that imposterness, but then at the same time, I'm like, isn't it cool that actually just being yourself out loud allows other people to take strength from it? Like, I never thought, oh, <laughs> here I am with my short hair and loving my girlfriend, obviously, on my social media present would mean things to people. But, like, I got a message from a mum just last week who was like, oh, look, Alice, you know, they'd asked me a rugby question and then they ended up following it up and saying, look, you know, we followed you because you've got energy and fill us in on some um, rugby stuff but like actually seeing you being out and happy with your partner has been really beneficial to our family because they've got uh their child who has just come out and they were really worried um about all of that and so they're like seeing that you're happy just gives us more of a you know hope that they will be and mm. yeah just being, be doing my full you know me some queer kid like know that whatever worries you have with them around the discrimination they will face they'll face it anyway people already hated me when I was in the closet you know what I mean because they could tell I was different in ways that I didn't yet understand so I already experienced the homophobia just didn't know that that's what it was and so once I knew who I was oh so much easier and then I'm like oh that's their problem and I could stop internalizing it yeah. so like your queer joy will always be bigger than other people's bigotry I can't I can't imagine what it was like to receive that message and to know that's just someone who sent the message because yeah. there's there's more there's more aha there's more good <laughs> feelings coming so to jump back into the investment in women's rugby we talked about how in England heaps is going there and obviously there's still this big gap in comparison to men's sport in general not just rugby I want to focus on the positive there and what ways have you seen positive 
progress in the space of women's rugby um, over the years and teared off that what still needs attention. Yeah. So I think the things work when you look to within the community to solve them, right? Like I think one of the real frustrations is, is like, we actually know, like we, the women's rugby community or like whatever sport it is, the minority within that sport, whether that's women, whether that's Pacifica people, Asian minorities, whatever it is, they actually know what would help more people like them feel yeah. supported and grow within it. So it's like, stop always being focused on this recruitment drive. Stop always being focused on like bringing in a consultant to come and tell you stuff. Talk to them. If you want more people like them in your thing, talk to the ones that are already there. Okay. And, and ask them what more they would need. So the best things that I've seen happen, not no surprise, have been initiatives that have been driven by women in the rugby community. So the Akawahine program that Vanya Wolfgram has designed and delivers for New Zealand rugby. Look, it's a coaching educating course, sure, sure. What it really is, is creating space for women across the motu to come together and know each other. You know, we are kept separate by design. You know, like we often, all women in sports think that we're the only one and we're the only one experiencing this. This is part of not necessarily intentional, but structural prejudice, right? Which is to make people feel powerless. And it's like, no, you're actually not. You know, again, if we go back to that feminism stuff, the first wave of feminism, that was basically what they were doing, was just like having conversations with each other and going, oh, it's not just me, and how much that can change things. So her program there and the way that she's continuing to develop it, you know, they they brought me in on the Wellington one, and we were having conversations there about coaching, right? And that's obviously now just become a more topical thing. And they were saying, oh, you know, there's all these different courses and stuff you can do. And I said, cool, so how do I get on one? And the answer for like coaching, for example, level three coaching is what you need if, at minimum. You probably want level four, but you need level three first in order to start climbing up that high performance pathway. So if I was wanting to coach a provincial team, for example, in order to get that level three, I have to be nominated by my union. Now, if you're an outspoken woman such as myself, I might have a bit of a fractious relationship with the people might be putting those through. So then some of our best advocates and best energy is kept outside because it has to go within in order to ascend, right? So I put that challenge to them and bless her. Vans put on a level three certification just for Akawahine participants and is going to continue to do that. So it's like, here is an example of us saying, clearly this is the issue. Clearly we need to create something different and they're responding to it. So that kind of feedback loop where we can actually have a two-way conversation you know, and that's the difference between, you know, push versus pull engagement. You can't just push stuff out and hope that some of it sticks. Yeah, you might get some, but then you have to pull them in and, and, and have it both ways. So that, then seeing when like key appointments are given to like the right people. One of the other issues that we have a lot of the time is that the women and girls role, A, is bundled in together. Big difference between what girls rugby needs and what women's rugby needs and what the challenges are there. That role is usually bundled together, is usually uh, one of the most junior within rugby unions, and so therefore is paid very poorly. And so it then therefore attracts like entry-level expertise into that position. Now that's a challenge because these women, young women, who, who could have a great history, uh, sorry, a great future, yeah in the um, sport are walking into a history that they do not entirely understand and a whole bunch of raru that has nothing to do with them 
And so, you know, it's not right that we then see a churn of these young women in and out of these roles. But when you get the right one, what like opportunity it unlocks. So for example, up in Northland, Rowena Everett has finally been given the Cody head job. She should have been given it when she first moved back, but politics. She's finally been given the um, Cody head job. What is she doing? She's not just selecting a team and playing it in the FPC. She's created a whole volunteer hub structure to sit below her that is allowing for multiple levels of development. So Northland's a massive region, we know that. So rather than her going, oh, too hard for me as a coach to travel around, everyone come to Whangarei, she has set up three hubs, far north, the centre and the and the south. She has got quality wahine to lead those because there is a bunch within Northland, Blackfern and each, who are helping to steer and guide that, you know, Blackfern or, or you know, retired Blackfern. And they are all um, then also getting the opportunity to upskill their talent ID um, specification, upskill their coaching, their management, their SNC. They're getting the opportunity to continue to grow and then give back in their community. She has had, as a result of opening that door, 72 players put their hands up and say they want to play for the Northern Cody. 72 in my city, in my where we have so many more people than we have in Northland, where we have so many more clubs and players, we couldn't get 72 to put their hands up. And what's the difference there? The mana that someone like that who comes from the, computer, uh, from the community and is not just, you know, not just appointed leadership, but authentic leadership. And, and that's the difference. We need to be, you don't train leaders, you find them and you support them to do what they're already doing. She stepped up. She's building this empire because there's people want to do it. There's just not been the permission. Permission, like, so she, yeah. She, so she's a really interesting one too, right? Because she applied for this is a classic issue we also have is application fatigue. There yeah. are so many talented people who have applied, 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 and I like stuff you. Like I how many times can I apply and you look at my CV and tell me it's not good enough to get the experience that I can only get by you giving me that job? Rowenia, she's so clever, mate. Like, so she wanted to um, be their head coach. They didn't give it to her. So what did she do? She set up her own team to show them how these programs should work in the north, which was the Titai Tokoro natives. And she took that team to Fiji and played Fiji as part of their World Cup warm-up. She took that team and they played a curtain raiser as part of um, Opiki. She's giving like a wider thing. She was like, you won't give me your Cody badge. I'll make my own badge and away we go. And that's the other thing to remember if you're uh, passionate in women's sports is that women's sports is a protest. No one ever turned around and was like, oh, you're allowed to play now. That was always a fight. People did it themselves, ran things to a certain level, then that was acceptable by the mainstream and brought in. That 91 and 94 World Cups like were not recognised by news, uh, by World Rugby until like two years ago. The 94 was only recognised last year, you know? So this is like a long, because those first two World Cups were self-organised by the women and they didn't ask World Rugby's permission because they didn't know they had to. That board was set up for men. So why would they think they would need to talk to them? They're not doing anything for them. So why would they ask permission over there? So it's like it, it was a special moment at the World Cup last year that I think a lot of people missed was that that trophy was retroactively engraved so that those first two winners' names were put on there, which is really important because the USA actually won in 91 and nobody knows that. 
Okay, so you asked me, stop saying thank you. Yeah, so look, this is again, like, comes back to that reframe I had when I came back. And I thought, at that moment in time, I had played rugby for like nearly 20 years. And I came back and I was like, I'm still here. And so at this point, with all of my experience within like how things have played out for me, it was like, not actually thank you for any of that because a lot of it was rubbish. And instead you're welcome that I'm still here. Honestly, you're welcome. Because there were so many points where had I not been driven more, I would have just given up because of course you would. If the competition is cut at that point, most people would just go over to another sport if it wasn't the thing that they loved. But like finding places and pursuing it. So I think that that's the case across a lot of it. It's like, no, no, thank you for my participation. You're welcome that I'm here. You're welcome that I'm part of this and that I'm continuing to try and put my energy and efforts into you know, making it better. Rugby is lucky to have me. I could be throwing this energy into any of the other sports I played as a kid. It could be cricket. It could have been football. It could have been um, hockey even for like that five minutes I played. It could have been those things that I chose to like go and push hard in, but it was rugby because that's the thing that meant the most to me. And so you're welcome that I'm bringing all of the different skill sets from all the different careers that I've had. We all do that. We all come with so many extra skills outside of just the game we're playing on the field. We all continue to give more. We know what it's like. If you're a woman in sport, you're never just playing it, right? You're also a low-key like Ponzi scheme, always trying to recruit people into your multi-level marketing. Like everybody during preseason, their pages may as well be like selling Tupperware because we're all like, come down, try it out, right? So you're like a multi-level marketing scheme, your uh, ticket sales. I just saw another one from a, a Scottish international posting up a link to ticket sales. When was the last time you saw Sam Kane do that? You know? So it's like, we're marketers. We're um, organizers, like a lot of the reason too that women's sport will explode if it gets a little bit of resources is we're already running it for nothing. So imagine if we were resourced, you know? So it's like all of these things, you're welcome that we continue to do with no love and respect. So imagine if we were given some. Imagine if all we had to do to play women's sports was be good at women's sports because that is the reality for our male counterparts. So why would I say thank you for like things that require me to be everything. I have to be everything. I can't just be good. I have to be amazing. And I have to also apply all of my energy to it. I can't just play for my local women's team. I've also got to coach them. You know, that's what's happening right now for me this season. Like we can't just wear one hat. That is the luxury that our male counterparts don't even realize they have, the, the privilege they have in sports, which is they don't even realize because of course that's how privilege operates. It's the things that work for you that you think because you're the main character just happen. It's like, no, that is by design to support you in a way that it isn't designed to support other people. So it's like, yeah, I mean, imagine just being good. Imagine how great we could be. Imagine how far I could have gone in my rugby had those layers, those that ladder actually existed. I I, I hate to think of it, to be honest. <laughs> and to your point, though, there are some things that aren't going to be on players' plates anymore. I'm going to pivot to tall poppy syndrome. Could you describe tall poppy syndrome from your perspective and how maybe you've experienced it or observed it all right so tall poppy syndrome being kind of like you're getting too big for your boots right 
<laughs> so who are you to be doing anything? You're getting too big for your boots. And I always think about like what I tell players on the field, like, and there's always a question of who's taking the ball in next. And I always say, if you've got time to ask who, the answer is you. And so if I'm taking too long and I'm complaining about something too much and I have the time to do that, then I actually have to be part of the solution. So it's like, that's why me, I don't, that's the permission I've given myself to do this stuff. And that whole thing around initially that, you know, reluctance to be positioning myself as any type of like spokeswoman because I was like, I haven't earned X, Y, and Z, but then realizing being a better player doesn't make me a better speaker, doesn't make me a better writer because I chose at different times to prioritize my career. That's given me a whole bunch of different skill sets that I can also bring to the sport that isn't just, you know, isn't just how I play or how I throw a ball, you know, that there are other things that you can do. And I think that that's something that's really exciting for women in sports at the moment is like the broadening of where it is that you can impact things and having that conversation with a friend of mine who was really gutted that they hadn't made it through to a world cup squad for another country. And I was saying, mate, you can have so much bigger impact actually at the moment off the field in terms of legacy and impact and all the things that we can change is like what we can do off field right now is huge. And it's going to change the direction of things much more than whether we played in that tournament and we made a quarterfinal or a semi or won a tournament. That won't be what people like what will inform the future so much as like all the parts we can do off it. So yeah, tall poppy. It's just this whole, it all ties back to this like faux egalitarianism, like myth that New Zealand was built on. We were never equal. There was always a group like, you know, when you people look back in the past and say, oh, at that point we were all together and everyone was happy. No, we weren't. There was always someone's voice that was missing from that conversation. If you go back to when everybody was agreeing, that's because the only people that were talking were white men. So, of course, they're all agreeing with each other. As soon as we start bringing other people's perspective in, we go, oh, maybe that actually isn't so great. So, like, that, that whole thing of keeping people down is also how we keep progress from happening. Because if people aren't able to step up and say, I want to do better in this space, that's we, we're pulling back and we're not allowing people to reach their potential. And why would we do that? But the idea of success, which is tied into that, I also find interesting, right? Um, and that sometimes I think visibility, people can equate to success, but they don't necessarily mean the same things, right? Like I'm super aware that I'm super visible at the moment, but like I'm the brokest I've ever been. Like, yeah, I get paid to, I'm I'm happy because I was a good little capitalist when I was younger. And so I was really lucky that I was able to buy my house um, when I did. And so that's changed like the decisions I can make now. If I was having to rent, I wouldn't be able to do this full time because I wouldn't have that, like, I would have a variability. I have a set understanding of what my outgoings are. So I know how much I need to make, you know, these type of things also all inform that. And so there's like a privilege as well that I have in order to be able to give to this thing at the moment, which doesn't give me enough financial reward, but it fills my cup in other ways. And so that idea of success, I think, is also interesting. And that like success is not finite and is totally individualized. Your version of success will be completely different than mine. And and so don't fear it in other people. Like we should always be amping people up there is uh two women who talk about a concept called shine theory have you ever heard of that no 
Okay, so Aminatou So and Anne Friedman, both writers, and they coined this, I don't know, a bunch of years ago now, but it was this idea that often women are pitted against each other because we're only allowed one, right? Like we're only allowed one person to be talking about rugby. And so at the moment, well, that's Alice. It's like, no, actually there's lots. And so the more that those people that would be put in competition to compete for that one piece, the more that they can collaborate together, the better we can be, that stronger link to all pull for change. So for me, I'm like, I've got a list of other women in my phone that if I get asked to comment on something and I'm like, you know what, that's outside my wheel of experience, or I might not be as clued up and might not have seen that game, I will message them and go, sis, can you talk? Are you available? And always have that. And like the biggest success I've felt personally has been like how that has changed and that we are hearing more voices talking about these things and so like when the black ferns environmental review came out last year that there were like four different women in the media cycle that were talking about it you know not just me multiple and they and we don't all agree and that's awesome and that's actually what we need is like more voices talking about it from more angles i'm gonna have blind sites because of my own privilege in my life and my own life experience that i won't know how these things are affecting other people. I won't in, in, intrinsically know these things. There will be other people who can speak to that experience and will be able to articulate things that I don't even understand. So we need to make room for all of them. But like the idea that people will look and we go, oh, Alice, you're successful now. I go, oh, isn't that funny? Like, okay, I'm basically doing the same thing I always did. It's just now people hear it. Um, and so like, it's the same as she always was but just more people paying attention now, which is a very funny position to be in. There are a couple of things there that I really like. First of all, thanks for explaining. Yeah, there doesn't just need to be one. We can collaborate and lift each other up. And that's the emphasis on what I'm trying to push is yeah. Yeah, you said success isn't finite. Yeah. And in the same way, you're going to have biases that I'm going to have biases. Your success is going to be different to my success. Yeah. I'm... I, I like a lot of different things that you said there. Primarily, let's bloody like pull this whole thing along. Yeah. Clearly, we've spoken a lot about rugby and women's sport, but that's applicable to everything and everyone. And especially in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we have such a cool, unique community feel that we yeah. actually really can. Like it's really tangible. We're small enough that you can make a real impact just by coming together. And um, I'm going to ask you, one more serious question and then one final fun one and we're done because I appreciate your okay. time. Um, so good. What do you love about rugby? Mm. When I was young, what I loved about it was the freedom it gave me, right? Because I played football up until then. I wasn't very good with footwork. <laughs> um, and I got told off a lot for my physicality. And so for me, it was the freedom of like, two things one that I never had to wait my turn I'm one of how many now seven is that right yeah I think there's a lot of kids <laughs> um and so I didn't have to wait my turn if I wanted the ball I could go and get it and that includes when they have it I can go and attack a ruck and, and get it back so no no waiting my turn um and the second thing being like just the freedom of putting the ball under my arm and running as fast as I could like awesome and the mental resilience it also gave me from when I got smashed, like when I get absolutely laid out, particularly when I was a young player and I was little and I was playing women's rugby, which 
anyway um and i get absolutely laid out but like the mental toughness that also gave me to be like i'm okay i just got hit by the scariest person in the field and i'm okay and like that lesson that it can carry you into other places those are like i guess the unique to the sport thing when it comes to the community that's the bigger piece right i grew up in a very pakia pakia neighborhood very middle class i may um primary school all white basically my high school pretty much the same and so were it not for going and playing rugby i wouldn't have really been ex exposed to other people's cultures right and like how that then opened up my whole world view um when i was 13 and i got picked for that wellington secondary schools team i was like the only i think pakia girl in the team culture shock massive like wow but then what that also gave me to be like, oh, this must be like how other people feel walking around all the time, right? And so it initially was like the freedom that it gave me and the lessons it taught me on the field, but the off the field stuff and meeting so many different people, experiencing all their different cultures, learning and, and understanding like the nuances and all the like beautiful things that they bring and their lovely families and all the beautiful food and like all of the stuff that being with people who aren't just like you can give you. And I just, yeah, I think that ultimately is why rugby was more my home, like why I stayed there compared to the other sports I played where I maybe was the same as everyone else. And that didn't have enough to teach me. I wanted to go in a place where we were different and we could learn from each other. Yeah, and look how far it's taken and will continue to take you. Final question and thank you again for your time. If you're gonna have one meal, for the rest of your life breakfast lunch dinner what is it gonna be oh my gosh one like because my main thing is like cooking when I'm not doing my I always say that my like fake retirement like dream is to like little run a little cafe because I love food love cooking um what am I eating it's probably gonna have to have cheese in it is it just a pizza is that too basic then I'm like only eating pepperoni pizza for the rest of my life sure sure I feel like that's the only thing I can say that I can eat at breakfast and also in the evening and not feel like whereas like my other thing I love is like a murabak have you ever had one of those it's like a Malaysian dish where you stuff a roti with like minced meat and um you know veggies and egg and beautiful flavors I love those but like the idea I guess of waking up and eating that in the morning maybe not <laughs> oh my goodness Alice thank you so much I'm there are so many things that I'm probably going to like hit you up later. Be like, Hey, here's an interesting, here's an yeah. interesting thing. Seriously. Ideas just... are always open. So feel free. They absolutely are. Where can people find you? Oh, on the internet. Um, I'm Alice Soapbox on everything on all of the platforms. So yeah. And, and like I say, DMs are definitely open. And um, that's the other thing message to people at the moment is like the accessibility of folks in New Zealand is a super um, beneficial thing. Take advantage of it. Don't be like creepy about it or weird, but like always send a message, you know, like particularly at the moment, if you have a favorite athlete and they're doing something really cool, send them a message, write a little comment under their, under their post and just be like, you're awesome. We love to watch you, you know, and then we'll make people feel good. I think that's that whole thing is if you think it like, tell them about it. Because a lot of the time we're just like marching around doing our stuff and we don't necessarily understand all the kind of places it's hitting. So tell people if you think they're cool. That's it. Perfect way to end. 
Alice, I think you're cool. I think you're brilliant. Likewise. <laughs> Thank you. I'll let you get on with your day, but you've absolutely made mine. Oh, Thanks. happy to. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening to Tall Poppy Talk. We'll see you next time. Feel free to check us out on socials, YouTube, and the website. Thanks for today's guest, and we'll see you all next time. Take care. Be kind.